South Africa is very proud of its institutions, its courts. And here was an example of the courts um, refusing to accept that Zuma is above the law and taking him to task uh, for his you know, insubordination, essentially towards uh, you know the, the constitution and the institutions that were created by it. On June 29th, former South African President Jacob Zuma was sentenced to 15 months in jail for contempt of court while under investigation for corruption. Since his arrest, protests have erupted across South Africa with widespread violence. In this episode, we look at the politics of the post-apartheid republic, including the prominence of Mandela's former party, the ANC, the current president Cyril Ramaphosa's economic agenda, and South Africa's place in the world. Today on the podcast, we have Judd Devermont. Judd Dermont is the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He previously served as the National Intelligence Officer for Africa, the Central Intelligence Agency's Senior Political Analyst on Sub-Saharan Africa, and the National Security Council Director for Somalia, Nigeria, the Sahel, and the African Union. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. So in the last week, there has been deadly violence on the streets of South Africa from looting to rioting and even food shortages. Could you give our listeners a sense of the scene on the ground in South Africa? What is the source of this violence and how did it spiral out of control? Sure. Um, So protests erupted and violence erupted um, quickly after uh, the former president, uh, Jacob Zuma, was uh, convicted essentially of contempt for corruption charges and uh, communities first in his home based in KwaZulu-Natal, which is in um, the uh, east coast of South Africa, and then it spread particularly to Johannesburg, the commercial capital, started uh, rioting and looting um, stores, etc. It got out of hand very quickly. The government had to deploy the military. About 25,000 soldiers were deployed um, for about a three-month dispatch, essentially. Um, There's also been reporting that local communities have had to act as their own vigilantes to protect their their communities and their their homes from the looting. It's slowed down um, in recent days, but there's concern that there'll be a a second wave. So you mentioned former South African President Jacob Zuma's prison sentencing, and I kind of want to start with some background information for our listeners. So who is President Jacob Zuma, and what should our listeners know about this court case and these corruption allegations? Sure. Jacob Zuma was the really the substantive third president uh, of South Africa since the end of apartheid in 1994. Uh, first, of course, was Nelson Mandela, uh, then Thabo Mbeki. Um, Thabo Mbeki uh, stepped down briefly, so there was an interim president, but then Jacob Zuma uh, took over uh, in about um, 2008. And, and Jacob Zuma um, is a longtime ANC fighter. He's more associated with being uh, in the intelligence uh, wing of the ANC when they were uh, fighting uh, for multiracial democracy in South Africa. Uh, he is from KwaZulu-Natal, I said earlier. Um, and he had been long dogged by uh, rumors and allegations of corruption, even in his earlier uh, tenure as the deputy 
president under Thabo Mbeki. And these continued while he became for the you know, the 10 years or so that he was president, uh, particularly around uh, what I assume we'll talk about later, which is state capture, meaning that he uh, often allowed his uh, corrupt cronies to dictate ministerial positions. Uh, and then uh, towards the end of um, 2018, at the end of his tenure, essentially, he uh, tried to orchestrate uh, the handover of power to his ex-wife, Nikosizana Dlamini Zuma, uh, he, they were defeated and Sir Ramaphosa became president. And immediately after Jacob Zuma's uh, stepping down from both the party presidency at the ANC and then the country presidency, uh, there has been a wide-ranging investigation on his corruption. Uh, this is known as the, the Zondo Commission. And Jacob Zuma really um, refused to cooperate with the courts. He often feigned illness or uh, refused to accept that they had authority. And so the the conviction that he had um, was essentially about a 16-month conviction uh, was not because of his corruption, but it was because of contempt, because he refused to participate um, with the court proceedings. So on July 7th, Zuma ultimately voluntarily surrendered to the police. And this was after a really tense week where he stated that the calling for his arrest was sort of a conspiracy against him. Now, why did Zuma make these accus- accusations and why did he ultimately surrender? Well, he accuses this as being a conspiracy because um, it is his view that, um, and many of those aligned with him, that uh, his enemies within the ANC had cooked this up against him. The ANC is divided in all sorts of ways uh, based around um, ideology, um, how they believe the market economy should be structured. Um, It's divided um, around, you know, more nefarious splits, such as, you know, whether they have indulged in corruption or not. Um, It's really pretty much on any question you could have about the future of South Africa. The ANC has, has factions. In fact, your listeners may not know that when we talk about the ANC in South Africa, we actually call, we talk about something called the Tripartite Alliance. So the ANC, uh, the South African Communist Party, and Kasatu, the labor union, have worked together um, since 1994, but even during the liberation struggle. And so when Jacob Zuma's candidate lost um, for the presidency, um, you know, there has been a split ANC. In fact, so much so that the what they call the top six the uh, the president, the deputy president, and then uh, four key positions within the ANC. Some of those folks are aligned to Jacob Zuma, and some of those folks are aligned to Sarah Ramaphosa. It was a razor thin win for Sarah Ramaphosa. So uh, Jacob Zuma essentially accusing the courts of carrying out uh, the political objectives of his rivals uh, aligned with uh, Sarah Ramaphosa. And I think he ultimately resigned because he could see the cards on the table. Um, that he had very limited ways uh, to get out of it, um, that another one of his allies, Ismagashuli, who is one of the top six, he had already had to step down. And so I think he had just no more cards to play. And so he decided uh, to go uh, and turn himself in, both with the expectation that it would be a short sentence. People are projecting, at least before the riots, it would be about three months. And also that he could rile up his uh supporters, which his family members and others quickly did after he uh, you know, went into custody. So what had been President Zuma's legacy after he stepped down in 2018? 
how did his actions and policies affect South African affect the South African economy, politics, and society? Well, the legacy is in two parts. First of all, the the government of Sir Ramaphosa is spending an awful lot of time undoing all of the poor decisions that that Jacob Zuma made around, particularly around some of the parastatals, such as uh, South African Airlines or uh, the lack of investment in ESCOM, which is the energy company. Um, there, Sir Ramaphosa has to and has been spending a lot of time um, either directly or through the Zondo Commission, removing a bunch of um, Zuma's cronies or chasing after uh, two brother Indian brothers known as the Guptas who have been involved in this uh, state capture. So in, in some respects, there's both a policy problem, which is dealing with uh, the legacy of Zuma, um, and then there's a political problem, which is the energy that has to be spent on in terms of consolidating control of the party as much as one can ever consolidate control of the ANC uh, in his departure. And, you know, it requires really President Ramaphosa saying to South Africans and to the rest of the world, this is a different South Africa. This is a South Africa that's open for business. This is a South Africa uh, that is a reliable partner. This is a South Africa that uh, won't tolerate corruption. And that's been a, a tall order, unfortunately. And, and just one last point, I think, about Zuma's post-presidency legacy is the, the work of the Zondo Commission, and particularly uh, all of the, the cases in which Zuma is um, being forced to account for his corruption, is a major media circus. And so a lot of the bandwidth um, that perhaps could be focused on other things is being taken up uh, on whether he is going to show up for court uh, this day or the next day. Yeah, I think that's a great point that everyone's kind of just watching with bated breath to see his his next move in this debacle. So I want to talk a little bit about, we talked about how he retains a lot of support um, with some of the people in the ANC and also within his hometown Providence. But what has been kind of the general reaction of South African people to his sentence and arrest? Are they in agreement with him that this is most certainly kind of a vendetta against him, or are they kind of seeing this as the restorative justice that his corruption allegations deserve? Well, it depends, of course, where you are, uh, where you stand, uh, where your allegiances are. Um, you know, not unlike um, our own country, everything is seen through the prism of your allegiances and political factionalism, um, political tribes. Uh, but I, I would say that many South Africans do see this as a, a score for justice. South Africa is very proud of its institutions, its courts. And here was an example of the courts um, refusing to accept that Zuma is above the law and taking him to task uh, for his you know, insubordination, essentially, towards uh, you know the the constitution and the institutions that were created by it, uh, which is a it's a very liberal constitution, and it's a it, these are very strong institutions. So, in general, I think most people saw this as the long arm of the law, um, you know, doing what it should do, um, and those people who are maybe a little more politically objective we could also point out that there's been a number of people that have been arrested for or or on trial that are corrupt and aligned with Zuma. But Cyril Ramaphosa's allies have also been caught in the net. And so there's a sense of this is a objective um, 
anti-corruption campaign, not a witch hunt. For example, uh, the Minister of Health, um, McKeezy, has had to step down from his position, and he had been a very important ally to President Ronald Posa, especially with respect to responding to the uh, COVID-19 crisis. So you briefly mentioned the term state capture, and could you just explain what that term means to our listeners and how that term specifically applies to South Africa? Yeah, state capture in the South African context essentially means that um, elements that are not elected by the people are making decisions about governance in South Africa. And oftentimes it gets uh, focused primarily around these two brothers that I mentioned, the Gupta brothers. They are they are two Indian um, businessmen who are very close to uh, Zuma. And um, there was several episodes that were revealed in which the Guptas would say, we want this ministry to go to this person. Um, And then Zuma uh, would um, oblige them. They employed one of Zuma's children as a way to sort of continue that relationship, uh, keep it close. Uh, Lots of stories about how uh, one of the Gupta brothers, I believe, had a huge reception on an Air Force base, essentially a party using government resources. So if your listeners think about it, it means that essentially that the state is not responsive to the public or the people's representatives, but to these extra government official um, individuals, particularly those who, that are corrupt and close to Zuma. To what extent do you think um, Zoom is Zuma's case an outlier? Is corruption really widespread in South Africa right now? Well, I, I think that Zuma is not so much a, of an outlier as he is emblematic of the problem. He is sort of the most um, public and, you know, outwardly, you know, symbol of this problem, uh, because he is the president and because, you know, his rise to power, you know, there was no one was unaware of this sort of dirty legacy that he had. He was in a lot of trouble for defense contracts before he became president. Um, but the ANC, or at least parts of the ANC, you know, have been painted with uh, corruption allegations. And many South Africans would point to the inefficiencies of their, um, their, their government, its inability to provide services. There's lots of reasons for that, including you know, systematic racism and the legacy of apartheid. But the ANC hasn't done itself favors when many of its elements um, are involved in, in these get-rich schemes and, and taking money um, from government coffers. And we've seen a number of municipalities that have, have also shown uh, to be very corrupt and inefficient. There was a really interesting expose a couple of years ago about Nelson Mandela Bay, which is where uh, Port Elizabeth is. So it, it is fairly widespread. I would talk about it with respect to the political party and those who could benefit from political access. And I, I would just be cautious about painting the all of the ANC as corrupt, but essentially there are elements that are corrupt and there are probably elements that um, you know turn a blind eye to this corruption. Um, because it's it's so endemic in the party, but you know Sarah Ramaphosa, there is no currently there's no you know allegations that he's corrupt, and you know this is a man who uh, has been in the ANC for a very long time. He um, had also been critical in the negotiation to lead to the uh, dismantling of apartheid, and then he became a business folk a business leader, and you know he's been fairly 
uh, upright about all of these things. And I think he's doing a decent job uh, trying to clean up the party as much as it's politically feasible. Great. So that leads us perfectly to our next question, which is about Cyril Ramposa. So as we previously mentioned, he's the current president of South Africa. He's Zuma's former deputy. deputy. So what has been his reaction to this case and the recent protests um, in South Africa? Yes, Cyril Ramposa has been supportive of the case, or at least I think he's taken a position that it's the courts that will have to decide. It's a, it's you know sort of the right stance on something like this, not to politicize the courts, even if that, you know, indirectly they're benefiting him. But as I said earlier, some of these um, Zondo commission investigations or allegations of corruption have hurt his allies as well. With respect to the the violence, um, he and the protest, uh, he's been very clear about um, the need uh, to make sure that there's accountability. Um, he has been not shy to point fingers um, at those who have stirred the pot, such as uh, one of Zuma's daughters or other elements of the ANC aligned with with Zuma. At one point, he called this, or or at least those around him, you know, alleged this was almost like a coup to try to take power. Uh, So, you know, I think he's been proactive about it, you know, deploying the, the troops. He's now done a number of tours of some of the areas that have been affected by the protests. Um, he's going to have a challenge, uh, I th- think, though, to you know recover th- from this, heal the party, address some of the underlining drivers of the protests, and reassure the world uh, about that South Africa is on a more positive trajectory despite um, the violence that we've seen over the last week or so. And I was also wondering if you could talk about Ramaphosa's policies more generally in the nation. So since he started the pres- since he became president, what has been the focus of his agenda, um, and how has he taken steps to address the corruption that Zuma was accused of? But then you also mentioned um, his some of his loyalists have been accused of corruption as well. So has he taken steps to address that? Yeah, I would characterize Zuma's policy, excuse me, Ramaphosa's policy um, in terms of um, economic investment, which let's think about the anti-corruption efforts as a subset because they are related, um, addressing some of the, the weaknesses of the state institutions, responding quite, uh, I think, uh, strongly towards COVID, although South Africa has probably the most severe um, COVID-19 outbreak uh, across the at least sub-Saharan Africa, and then thinking about South Africa's role in the world. So let me just take those those four very quickly. We've talked about the anti-corruption cases that, you know, support of the Zondo Commission, pushing out um, Ace Magashuli or telling him he has to step aside, um, you know, acknowledging that, you know, his allies like uh, Makize will have to step aside as well. This is, I keep saying step aside because it's a term of art in, in South African politics, which is not step down. You step down if you're convicted, you step aside while there are allegations pending. Um, you know, he hasn't gone after or has been very careful about his deputy vice president, David Mabuza, who sort of acted as a kingmaker to allow him to defeat uh, Jacob Zuma's uh, ex-wife, uh, but also has um, problems uh, in terms of his own reputation uh, and his own corruption. So that will be an interesting one to see how we progress there. But so 
he's also taken, you know, as part of this, so deal with corruption one, but also, you know, go out uh, to the world and look for more investments, which was what he was doing before the COVID-19 crisis, uh, going to Gulf states, going to the U.S., going to Europe and and trying to encourage more investment. South Africa has had a very anemic growth record, anywhere between one to two percent, dipping into recession at different points. It's the most mature economy. It's the second largest economy, but it's got a number of structural challenges that allow it to really be um, as 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 much of an economic powerhouse in terms of growth as they would like and they need to address some of their unemployment issues. So that was one, um, corruption and economic. Two, I said, is the parastatals. South African has a number of state-owned institutions that are important for everything from power generation, which is their company called ESCOM, uh, to transportation, whether it's SAA, the South African Airlines, or Transnet. And he's been trying to deal with those, restructure them. It's going to take a long time. They're not all the problem of the Zuma uh, administration, but there's a long legacy here of mismanagement uh, over being bloated. Um, that's part because, as I said, one of the key partners for the ANC is the labor union, Kasatu, and so they don't want to see uh, their people be retrenched, to be fired. So he's been working on those. He's got a good ally in Pravin Gordon, um, who is the Minister of State Enterprise. It's a slow progress, but you know, at least I think he's signaling the right things, even if it's a political, you know, it's almost like a third rail in South Africa. On COVID, um, I thought he's been a strong leader on COVID. He's, you know, worn his mask. He's let science lead. Uh, he's got um, a good partner in their health institutions, uh, a guy named Slim. And McKeezy, despite his corruption, actually was doing some very positive things. But the country, because it's so globally connected, because of the, the history of racism and inequality in this country, um, has really been hit hard by COVID and is right now in a really vicious third wave. And then finally, the, the fourth point is on uh, South Africa's leadership. You know, South Africa, like Nigeria, Ethiopia, and, and Kenya, are the big dogs when it comes to sort of uh, African foreign policy. South Africa is part of the G20. It's a strong voice within the G77. It's often represented on the UN Security Council. Um, Zuma's ex-wife, um, Kosazana Dlamini Zuma, was the head of the African Union at its for a time. Uh, but, you know, Zuma was really not that um, instrumental in terms of global leadership. He deployed troops to CAR, uh, and there probably because there was a diamond interest of his, and, and 13 South African soldiers died. And so uh, he really sort of, I think, uh, abdicated some of South Africa's leadership roles and, and made some votes that I think are not consistent with its, its values. Ramaphosa has been trying to correct that. I wouldn't say that every single decision that the South African government has made is something that the U.S. Uh, would look upon favorably, but his leadership in terms of representing the African governments uh, during the COVID crisis, both in terms of pushing for supplies and now vaccines, as well as um, debt relief, I think has been extraordinary. And I think Many African countries uh, owe a great attitude for Ramaphosa just to happen to be both the head of the African Union at that period, uh, the, the titular sort of uh, chairman, uh, as well as being in South Africa, which is a key country. So I want to take us kind of back a step even further. And we mentioned earlier how the ANC was the party of Mandela. He was 
um, the leader of that in 1994. And then we talked about Zuma. And then obviously we talked about Ramaphosa. So I think a question that a lot of our listeners would try to understand is how did the ANC kind of change over time? What accounts for this change of like the party of Mandela, the party of freedom and justice to Zuma's legacy of kind of corruption and then now under Ramaphosa, um, we're kind of seeing like a new wave of that. So what accounts for these changes over time? Is it just internal party conflict that you were talking about earlier? Or is there some kind of other, um, I guess, cause that we should be looking at um, with the regards to the changes in the ANC? Well, I think it has a lot to do with one party being in power for 27 years. Um, I don't think that's healthy for democracy. Um, and, and while I noted that South Africa has one of the most liberal constitutions in the world. It has strong institutions, right? Um, it was a remarkable transition under uh, Mandela, uh, a peaceful one largely um, that I think everyone, and you know, we're recording this just after Mandela Day, um, where you know there's still so much respect uh, for what he did. Um, and, and what happened, I think, over time, over 27 years, is the South African government, the ANC, you know, has an imperative, which is both to govern wisely, but also to address some of the, 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 the structural challenges of, 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 of racial segregation in this country. And they had a lot of money um, to hand out. Um, you know, quite honestly. And then also, you know, many people started digging in and taking a little money from them on the side or felt like that they needed to deliver money um, to their constituents. Uh, and, I, and I think just a, a, there was a rot that developed over time. It's, there was very few checks on the party. Um, and, and people like uh, Jacob Zuma was, were able to climb the ladder. I mean, Mandela you know, ruled... Uh, very wisely stepped down after one term. His successor, uh, Thabo Mbeki, I think was a good leader. Um, he was difficult to deal with at times, and his policies on AIDS, HIV were, were really horrific. He subscribed to some pretty wacky ideas about um, about what causes AIDS, HIV and, and how to cure it. Um, and then Zuma was able to essentially kick him out of the presidency and take over. And uh, from there, uh, I think things got a lot worse. So uh, one way to think about it is that if you don't have strong checks and balances uh, and you don't have power alteration, um, there a complacency can step in, a, a sense of being above the law. And I think that's what's happened to the ANC over time. Uh, there really hasn't been a strong competitor, political party competitor to the ANC. In fact, uh, maybe your listeners don't know that the old apartheid party, the nationalists, the Nats, um, they ultimately were absorbed by the ANC um, in the early 2000s. Uh, there is one party that represents, um, you know, some constituencies, the Democratic Alliance. Uh, it does really well in, in the Western Cape and in Cape Town and at times um, has been able to hold major uh, cities such as Johannesburg and Pretoria and Port Elizabeth in coalition. Uh, but some of the, the sheen uh, is gone from that party. And then there's one other party that's important to mention, which is the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is a, uh, a more left, more militant uh, party um, that's run by uh, Julius Malema, who used to be the ANC's youth wing leader. So 
there, there's a lot of reasons. I probably didn't capture all of them, but I think that at least gives your reader, you know, uh, your listener a taste of, of why the trajectory uh, is not as positive as we probably hoped in 1994. Great. That was really interesting. So before you also talked about how Ramaphosa is really trying to reform South Africa's international image. And what has really been the world's reaction to Zuma's sentencing and the recent unrest? Do you think that Zuma's arrest will affect how other governments view and also handle corruption in their own countries? Well, I, I think in terms of the, the world's reaction um, to the Zuma arrest, I think that's going to be much more important than the protest that we saw um, over the last week, I mean, I, I think the protests exposed some of the, the deep challenges in South Africa. But if we come out on the other side and a former president is in jail uh, for corruption or for contempt of court, I think that's a much more powerful uh, legacy. And interesting, it's happening when uh, we're seeing these things in other places in the world too, right? With uh, Macron, for example. Uh, no, excuse me, not Macron, Sarkozy in France recently being charged uh, with corruption. So, you know, there this is happening in different places. How much it will reverberate across sub-Saharan Africa, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I think it's a little too early and perhaps projecting to, to, to think that necessarily that what happened to Zuma will happen to other countries. Um, in other countries, former leaders um, are often are have been jailed, although usually not for corruption, uh, but perhaps for because there was a, a coup. Uh, but um, it is true that some have been at least on trial for corruption. I'm thinking about, for example, um, Frederick Chaluba in, in Zambia. That has, has been the case. Uh, but going after a former president makes a big splash. Um, and I'm sure many anti-corruption fighters will take um, real comfort um, from this. I just don't want to sort of draw a line that says, now Zuma, and this is going to sort of pop up all across the region. To end our podcast, we like to ask a question that kind of faces the future. So how do you think that these protests will end? And how will what will be Ramaphosa's role in bringing back together the ANC and moving the country forward after the arrest of Zuma? I think that this is going to be a little bit of two steps forward, one step back, or maybe it's one step back and two steps forward. I think with respect to the protests and the violence, um, there may be a, a second wave, as, as some have predicted. Uh, but South Africa also has a long legacy, unfortunately, of uh, xenophobic riots and violence, um, several waves of that, and, and public, uh, what they call public service protests, service delivery protests, the fact that the government does not always provide the goods that South Africans expect as part of their social contract. So I think some of these issues, in part because there's so much challenges uh, in South Africa, those will continue. But Ramaphosa's legacy will be defined by a couple of things. How does he steer his country out of the COVID-19 crisis? Um, it's a good news story that this, the United States is finally delivering vaccines uh, because South Africa has the Delta variant and it has the largest caseload and his ability to reopen his country 
and make sure the people are no longer dying from this disease will be huge. Um, and I think that there is some muscle memory based on how they respond to AIDS and HIV they can tap into now if they have the supply chains and the vaccines. But the second def defining moment for him is the economy and how he de deals with the parastales. I think that's a lot harder and I could foresee some improvements, but South Africa is going to depend on its economy revving up again is going to depend on, on so much getting the labor unions uh, to rethink the way that they um, employment works in the government and other sectors, the price of key minerals, how open the global economy is, whether or not the US and the Chinese trade wars intensify again. So there are some things out of his control, some things within his control, and some things just a little bit politically too difficult. Uh, the last point would be about controlling or, or reshaping the ANC. And I'm actually a little bit bullish that he'll be able to uh, reshape it to some degree. Uh, he'll be able to remove some of Zuma's supporters. He will lose as he has some of his supporters in the process. Um, but the ANC is a massive big tent. And so it's going to continue to be a raucous party where there's going to be lots of disagreements, pushing for a consensus. It's going to be slow moving, gradual and incremental. Uh, but I think over 10 years or two terms, I, I think he will be able to, to make a difference. We just need to take the long view. Uh, we shouldn't sugarcoat um, or give him a pass. Um, we should confront um, his strengths and his failings, honestly. Um, and I, I think that's the best recipe and for the way the U.S. engages with, with South Africa and Cyril Ramaphosa, but it's almost certainly how South Africans do. Great. Thank you so much. That was really insightful and informative. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Department at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow our social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest Hopkins POFA updates. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.